Listening to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, my name is Ryan Cagle. This is a work of exile liturgy in collaboration with TheologyCorner.net. Today, we are continuing in our not-so-ordinary time season where I have different authors and pastors and lay people on the show uh, to talk about their lives and their work and um, their journey down these wild paths that we that we call, uh, that have been left uh, in, for the church uh, by the saints, sinners, heretics, and mystics. And... Um, Today we have a special guest on. We have Benjamin L. Corey, who is an author, a blogger. He's the head of the Pathios Progressive Wing. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it. If you listen to my podcast, chances are you're probably familiar with at least Pathios.com. Um, and so I'm really stoked to have him on. He just he has a new book coming out on the seventh, which is if you're listening to this podcast today, uh, will be the day the book releases. Um, and so it's a great book. I finished it uh, this morning, and I cannot recommend it enough. And so I'm stoked to have uh, been on the show to talk about his book and to talk about his life and his work. And so, Ben, if you will, just like I said, I think probably most of the people uh, that listen to my show are probably familiar uh, to some extent or probably know your name, at least the majority of them. But if you would, could you just introduce us uh, and tell us all things about you sure. and uh, your life and your work? Yeah, man. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. It's uh, cool to be on the show. Uh, and uh, especially here on uh, launch day for my book, uh, which uh, has been a long time coming. It's a really long birthing process uh, that can uh, you know, take a couple of years from start to finish. So um, it definitely marks uh, kind of in, in one way the end of a long journey and on the other hand, like the beginning of like an entire new journey. Um, now that people get to finally read uh, what you've been working on for so long. But yeah, so I mean, Benjamin O'Corey, uh, I think uh, folks know me as uh, the blogger behind uh, Formerly Fundy, uh, which was, you know, the original name of my blog uh, and how I started out and, um, you know, wrote a book a few years ago on Jesus called uh, Undiluted. And um, so I'm an author, blogger, uh, scholar. I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary for four years and then went on and did my doctorate at Fuller Seminary in California. And uh, so studied all kinds of uh, different fun stuff uh, throughout my years there, everything from um, you know, all standard systematic theologies to, you know, different theology, uh, you know, uh, to other religions such as, uh, you know, Islam and Hinduism, um, to uh, culture in general and lots of anthropology and uh, Bible stuff and Greek and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was a long eight years and uh, finished up uh, that journey last year, which um, is almost kind of why uh, the book took so long uh, in that when I first started writing the book, I was actually at the same time, you know, in the same chunk of time I had to write, you know, uh, you know, an 80,000 word doctoral dissertation and a 70,000 word book. And uh, to this day, I have no idea how I did both of those, but somehow I did. And uh, now today marks the day that I really completed both of those projects. Um, I've already actually recommended to several people. I've messaged people that hey, this book is coming on the seventh. You need to you need to pre-order it. You need to go ahead and get it uh, because I, as someone, I just dealt with uh, crippling fear for the majority of my life. Um, it's still something I struggle with. Sure. I would say probably. Um, the the thing I hear I, w- I would say I I hear and I use that word kind of loosely yeah. from the Holy Spirit is stop being so damn afraid. Right. Um, and so I even, you know, whether it be, you know, with God and my relationship with God or just in life in general, I tend to live a very, I've have tended to live a very fearful mm. life. And so uh, the book was really good. It resonated with a lot of uh, so much of, I guess, my journey and, and so much of the things that I've struggled with and wrestled with and, and coming to a, a more beautiful, fearless faith. And so um, 
you know, through the book, you share a lot of your personal journey, which I love. I love when you, you're talking about your kids and you, you're, how you're, you had to change your approaches mm-hmm. when you, uh, and different things with your kids and, and stuff like that. And uh, you share your journey um, and how you've come to move beyond that fear-based faith. And um, it's one of those books. Um, do you feel like this was one of those books or the book that you could not not write, so to speak? And I know as we opened up, you said it was kind of a long birthing process. Yeah. So would you describe this book that way? Sure. No, definitely. It, you know, it was interesting how it came to be because the book I wrote was not the book that I was contracted to write. Like this started as, um, this started as a completely different book that was just kind of maybe a general critique on American, Americanized Christianity. And, um, you know, as I describe in the very first chapter, like at the period of time, like after I had been contracted to write this book, I sat down to write it and every day I just froze. Um, and in fact, you know, the, so the book that I was supposed to write was, was just, it, for some reason, it was like not in me. I was scared to death. Um, I, w- I was so afraid that literally I had the, my advance check that you get when you sign a book deal in my desk and uncashed. Uh, until the day before it expired, uh, because I was so convinced um, that I just did not have the book inside me. Um, And it was right around that time that I realized that I was frozen with fear. Um, and that, uh, that this fear had like kind of crept into my faith, to my life. Um, and it was like leading to, you know, a pretty massive, like midlife crisis of faith. Uh, and so I had to figure out, okay, how do I write this book when secretly, I don't know what I believe anymore. Um, and around that same time, um, you know, I was podcasting back in those days with Matthew Paul Turner and, uh, we had Rob Bell on the show and I asked Rob a question, um, that was really about me. I said, you know, what would you say to somebody who doesn't know what they believe anymore? And he said, you know, he said, I'd say that's not true. You know, what's true is that right now you're just keenly aware of some things you no longer believe. But that's not the same thing as not knowing what you do believe. And uh, so that kind of provided me a mental reframe. And so I actually sat down and started writing down the things I didn't believe anymore. But then I asked a bigger question. I said, okay, if I don't believe this, then what do I believe? And uh, so the very first thing on that list was like, I don't believe in being afraid of God anymore. And so if I don't believe that, what do I believe? And as well, I believe that God is love. I believe that the ultimate expression of who God is, is Jesus on the cross dying for his enemies. And so I started writing the book there. Uh, and so letting go of the spear of God became like the first domino. Um that began to tip all others. And so as soon as I started writing it, it became, yeah, it became the book I could, you know, I couldn't not write. Um, it was so deep inside of me, so personal. Um, in fact, you know, I, I have, you know, I've always struggled with a lower self-esteem and insecurity. Um, and, but the one thing I can say, this is the first thing I have ever written and produced that I look back on and read it myself. And I say, you know what? I'm actually really, really you know, really proud to have my name attached to that. It's the only thing I've ever done that I feel good about. And so that's why I'm so excited about this book is, uh, yeah, it just, it was from a deep, deep part inside me. 
Right. That's, that's awesome. Um, you know, and like, I, I think that comes across in the book. I think it's very much so, like I said, there, there's a lot of, uh, your personal story in there and how, how you embody that and you kind of lay that all out mm. there. Um, it was really refreshing for me and it, it didn't feel like it was, you know, whitewash. It was doctored up. You know, you, you really laid it out there, the things you struggled with. And, um, so, you know, most of this, I guess this fear, um, struggling with this fear was kind of post deconstruction, right? I mean, in the, in the typical sure. sense. Um, well, yeah. I- yeah, for me, it obviously it began, uh, you know, in you know fundamentalism, evangelicalism. But what I realized was that you know long after I had kind of deconstructed and moved into a more progressive, you know, in the Anabaptist type faith, like I realized it was like still lingering there, um, and it was still impacting things. And I became really dissatisfied with kind of progressive Christianity in general because I started to feel like it was you know, playing the same game by the same rules, but for a different team. And, and it's, for me, it's the game itself is what's not satisfying. Uh, and so that's when I had to really take a step back and realize, oh, man, so much of this is about fear. Um, and so that's where, you know, I just kind of let the dominoes fall and, and why the book actually covers so many different topics, because I really believe that um, this is a path when we begin to kind of trace the roots of like where fear takes us, that you'll just see that it's really impacting nearly every different area of your faith. Right. You know, the book, uh, it, it, it tackles, like you said, all sorts of aspects um, to what I would think is just common to fear-based faith in America, and that doesn't necessarily mean, and you make a good distinction in the book between conservative and, and liberal, you know, it, it can be, mm-hmm. or progressive, um, how you, I think you did really well in the book is tackling the fact that those fear-based faith prevails in both of those camps and everywhere in between. Um, but, you know, in the book, you tackle subjects, you know, God's essential nature, being love. You tackle that tribalism. You tackle uh, eschatology. Um, and maybe this is kind of a heavy question or a question we could probably spend the next hour on. Uh, but for those really struggling with a fear-based faith, where would you recommend that they begin to move beyond it? Well, I, I, the reason why I begin the book with God is because uh, that, that, I mean, that is the foundation of everything. You know, how we see God impacts how we see others, how we see ourselves. And so moving beyond it begins with understanding like the true essence of who God is and choosing to believe that it's true, making that conscious decision. You know, so, you know, for example, when the Bible describes the opposite of love, it doesn't describe hate. When the Bible describes the opposite of love, it describes fear. Um, you know, and we're, of course, told in the New Testament that, you know, that perfect love, you know, cast out all fear. Um, and then, uh, you know, so if we really believe that God is love and that that is like God's like divine essence and, the, you know, the central aspect of, of God's character and nature, then for me that like that's the first step in moving beyond everything because we've, especially those of us who grew up in a more conservative flavor of Christianity that had you know, strong elements of hell or eternal conscious torment uh, more specifically, I mean, we're taught that you know, God is love, but... Well, God, God is also just, and he's wrathful, and he, he's this and that. And certainly there are times and places where the Bible describes you know, different attributes or manifestations of God or different portraits, and some of those may or may not be accurate or carry more weight than the others. However, the only place in the Bible where we're described like the true essence of who God is is when it says God is love. It never says, it can say God is just, but it doesn't say God is justice itself. Like God is love itself. That's the only way to understand it. And so for me, like moving beyond 
you know, this fear-based faith begins with that. And uh, honestly, I think a lot of this book for me was written in my own dissatisfaction of both, you know, coming out of the emergent church and then, you know, into progressive Christianity after that thing kind of fizzled, uh, my own dissatisfaction with deconstruction. It's as if, like, you know, we've deconstructed and deconstructed but not built anything new. Um, and, and we haven't moved beyond that. And so I didn't want to write just another book that kind of deconstructs fundamentalism. I wanted to write a book about, hey, how do we move into this new life and move beyond that chapter, move beyond that era uh, where all we did was, you know, burn things down. Yes, there was a time and place for that, but let's move on. Uh, and so for me, moving on began with accepting like the true character and nature of God, which is love. Right. I loved uh, the, the Thomas Ord quote. Mm. I just finished uh, his Uncontrolled yeah, Love Tom. of God two, two weeks ago. I met, yeah, I, he's actually my first time ever doing an interview for the podcast live. Uh, he happened to be in town and we synced up. And, um, and so that, that, was, that was cool to see his quote in your book. But, you know, that's, I think I, you put it this way. You said, you know, God is love, mm. period. I think when, when we grasp that, you know, that God is love, period, then things right. can change. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think – I think everything changes, and I think to some extent we're resistive to it. So I think in a way everything must change when we really come to grips with that. And I think you do a good job in the book of talking about how, you know, that, that being the pivotal place, you know, when, when God – when we realize that God is truly mm-hmm. love and, and there, period, nothing else, then – uh, then we can change. Then we can experience uh, that freedom of, of fearless faith, or we can experience uh, freedom in the grace of God. And um, you know, in the book, uh, you you talked about how you know rethinking God absolutely mm-hmm. means that we must mm-hmm. rethink ourselves. And so you know, like you, you just you talked about how the starting point for moving beyond a fear based faith is rethinking God and understanding that God is love. But it, it demands mm-hmm. a response. You know, I think once 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 we rethink God, it demands that response from us that we have to right. begin to rethink ourselves, um, which I I think is so important. I think that, and I love that you spent you know kind of a whole chapter really it's my dealing favorite with that chapter in the book. of the entire book. You know if. Gosh, if people read only one chapter of this book after buying it, I hope it's that chapter. And I, I, I pretty much underlined the whole thing. I, I amen you, mm-hmm. like you know, I'm, I'm, I come from a okay. Pentecostal background, so I amen people all the time. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm sitting there reading the book. And I'm like, amen, yes, that's good, that's good. <laughs> and like I'm in a church service or something. So the whole chapter I loved, um, you know, the narrative that that we're worthless sinners or, you know, that are just fit for the lake of fire is when I think that must be mm. abandoned at all costs. Um, and unfortunately, you know, as you make clear in the book, sometimes we struggle to move beyond more just mental assent of that. Like we, we even come to a place where we believe God is love um, and that we believe we're lovable, but we don't right. really embrace that. Um, and I love that you pointed that out in the book. I had a friend a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to him about fasting and kind of because I come from a, a like – Mm-hmm. Pentecostal backgrounds of and, and fasting was like you know this beating your body to death kind of thing, and uh, it, which I think he was actually quoting a friend, but he said Ryan, the truth is we say God's love, but we don't we don't believe mm-hmm. a, a word of it. You know we we say that God's love, but we don't really believe it. And and he's getting to you right. know we don't embrace that. Um, and so, and so like in your experience, you know even when we come to a place maybe even more progressive ideals. Um, or theological concepts or, or, or positions, you know, and we believe that God is love, why, why do you think it's so hard for us to accept it and embrace that for ourselves? Well, um, you know, honestly, I think, um, 
you know, one of the hard parts about embracing the idea of God is love um, actually has very little to do with ourselves. Um, I think that, you know, we want to extend to ourselves grace, that we want to kind of believe, you know, some of the better intentions about ourselves. Uh, You know, people like to justify themselves. What's hard about embracing the idea that God is love is like the par- one of the parables Jesus told about, you know, some workers, you know, had got hired in the morning and worked the whole day. And then uh, at the very end of the day, you know, some other workers got to come in and only worked, you know, a few minutes of the day, got, but, but got paid for a full day's wage. Um, and it really pissed off the people who had been working all day. Um, and I think what, that's one of our biggest hang-ups in embracing the idea of God is love. Uh, because we don't we don't want those people getting as much grace as we do, or we don't think that we don't think that that they, for some reason or another, have done enough, or or have you know the character enough or the life enough to be treated the way we want God to treat us. That's right. Um, and so that I think is the biggest hang up is that if we if we believe that God is love, it means that some really you know, undeserved people we think are undeserving are going to get the same treatment that we get. And that it, that feels inherently unjust and unfair in our hearts. And so we have to, um, you know, invent this idea of, you know, God is love, but, but, but for them, his love is going to look like this, um, where Jesus tried to, I believe, dispel that myth by, listen, hey, you know, I will have mercy on who I want to have mercy on. Like, this is none of your business, you know, um, if I choose to love them with this everlasting love and you happen to think that they are not worth it or that they yeah, are not Yeah, that's right. I, I think you're right. You know, we don't want, you know, Billy in the office next to us <laughs> to mm-hmm. get the same benefits that we get or, you exactly. know. I think that actually perpetuates the whole idea of eternal conscious torment because we, we say God's love, but at the end of the day, what we really want those people we don't like. Um, to get what we think they deserve. And um, right. you know, granted, we want grace for ourselves. We want love for ourselves. But often, um, in, the same, in the same breath, we don't think, you know, whoever, you know, that we somebody cut us off on, on the highway and we think that person is just fit for the fire. You know, they're just a worthless human being and we don't know anything about them. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's, uh, it feels really good to stand up and say, you know, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not a sinner like these others. You know? Right. It is. It does. It, it, uh, it helps kind of... Uh, um, continue that illusion in our head, you know, that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're in and other people are out. And I think in the, in the book, you, you spent a good bit of time talking about that, the tribalism and who's in and who's out, whether it be, you know, the social norms and being, uh, uh, unafraid to challenge those things and challenge the theological concepts and challenge the things that keep us boxed in. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it. You know, we, we live in such a, um, an in and out society or an us and them society. I mean, it, it comes down to that so much. We live in that, that binary. And, um, I mean, if anything's an, uh, just an absolute example, clear example of it, it would be our current political climate, I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one thing in the book, uh, that I, like I said, that I really loved is, and I, I mentioned earlier is that how you deal with the whole conservative progressive, um, you know, how progressivism is not some, end all be all solution, you know, that you can, right. you can, you can get, you can let go of the ideas of eternal conscious torment and an angry God. And you can, you can be accepting of LGBTQ people and all these things, but you can still not live in, in such a way that embraces love, but also you can mm-hmm. still be just as fundamental as the conservative flavors that you've left behind. Uh, and you seem to be very intentional to deny that reality that, you know, merely adopt, adopt, adopting progressive theological ideas is the real answer. 
And you spend of a course, good time. Yeah. You spend a good bit of time, you know, calling out both camps for their tribalism and fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciated that because um, being someone who I would guess consider myself a progressive Christian, that's one thing that I find just so just nerve wracking is that mm-hmm. so many of these even progressive people that I really look up to, they it's like they fall right back into the same. Yeah, the same excluding people, the same mindsets and um mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's room for nuance there in, in dealing with particular situations. Like, I'm, I don't want you to be best if you're if you're a minority. I don't think you should, you know, force yourself to be best friends with a white supremacist. Now, if the Holy Spirit's leading you to try to befriend somebody, that's a different story. But like, you know, mm-hmm. don't don't intentionally get yourself beaten up. I guess, but at the same time, the it seems so much. I see so much of it that in the progressive side of things, it just falls right back in those same habits same structures same who's in who's out um inhospitable and just mean often especially on the internet oh i totally agree i think i call them the progressive twitter police in the book and yeah you know it's um you know how you know in fundamentalism you know they'll they'll you know walk you out into the church parking lot but uh you know in uh progressive christianity you know they'll kind of shape you know publicly shame you on twitter you know until you show yourself out the door uh, and I think that, yeah, I hold like a lot of progressive ideals. However, uh, my biggest dissatisfaction with progressive Christianity is just really, a, you know, feeling a lack of love. Um, and honestly, I kind of miss that from my evangelical days because as much as I feel like, you know, my evangelical friends were wrong on a whole host of things and that they were exclusionary and they were this or that, you know, it their love was still genuine. Uh, and, um, you know, and I experienced that sometimes in, in progressive Christianity, I have you know, a lot of, you know, progressive Christian friends who are just, you know, ridiculously loving. Um, but as a group, we, we just, yeah, we have, we have this ability to, to really be unloving towards the people who remind us of our old theological self. Um, you know, and we forget that, you know, for those of us who crossed over and didn't just begin here, like it was a journey, you know, um, I, you know, the, the old version of me from 10 years ago would not have responded well to just nastiness and hate and shaming and telling me how wrong I was, uh, and, or, you know, what a horrible bigot I was like me from 10 years ago, like I crossed over because people responded to me with love because people, you know, built relationships with me. And over time, those relationships began to, you know, broaden how I see other people. They began to, you know, subtly challenge some of my views and this and that. And um, it was love that crossed me over. And it's as if with like we, those of us who got here because of authentic relationships with people who were, were okay with the fact that, that we weren't, you know, crossed over into some progressive realm yet, that they just loved us and were our friends and that that crossed us over like we forget that that's how we got here and all of a sudden right. we think that we, you know we're going to get other people here by being assholes and i just disagree with it <laughs> yeah no I, I i'm with you i think um i i can i can definitely look back and even just several years ago and just think about how angry i was towards evangelicalism and how mm-hmm. bitter i was and i mean i still have wounds and i think that probably yeah. comes down to a lot of it is that a lot of people that have crossed over or or a, of a more progressive side of things is that we're afraid to allow god to heal us mm-hmm. and um because if we allow god to heal us it means that we're gonna have to forgive um yeah. but if, he, 
it's easier not to forgive and you know it, it's a fear to me it's a it's a fearful thing almost mm-hmm. to to move into that place to where you can let those things go and those wounds can be healed and um it's it's hard to walk into god's uh healing grace and forgiveness because it, it means that we're going to have to turn around and forgive others also and so it, it can kind of it's kind of can it can be hard to do that unafraid because to some level a lot of times we don't want to forgive the people that hurt us we don't want to yeah. forgive the people that are a part of the same kind of mindset that for us was hellish, you know, um, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. so long. Yeah, where were you like two years ago? This would have made a really good chapter in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's wild because like it's – you just – I don't know. I think so many people think just moving to more progressive ideals is automatically going to be the fix. And I, I don't think it is because like, like you've made in the book and like you've said is that so much of that fear still carries over and mm-hmm. you can, and at the end of the day, you can, you can say God is love and nothing else till kingdom come. But until you really berate, until you really embrace it and yeah. allow it to get into the marrow of your bones it's and change how you view the other people around you, it's, it's just a thought. It's just an, another checklist of, of something to believe on a list of doctrines. It just looks a little different from the doctrines you believed before, but it, it's not changed you. And, well, exactly. Um, and that's why the chapter on, you know, re, you know, rethinking yourself is such a critical chapter. I just, I, I feel like that is like the missing step in theology so much of the time. I mean, theology is obviously like the study of God, but like, you know, if we were created in the image and likeness of God, how can we not like rethink God without rethinking ourselves? Uh, and to me, it just seems like, you know, after years and in, in years in seminary, um, that this was like this missing step that no one ever said to you, hey, you should probably rethink yourself now if you spent all this time rethinking God because you're made in the image and likeness of God. And so um, I just I think that chapter is so critical and it forced me to really do some hard work in myself. And I think that's a chapter where I get kind of the most raw and vulnerable about things I was struggling with and, and about like, you know, negative negative beliefs that I held about myself and um, and how, you know, if I if it's true that God is love, <coughs> excuse me, and I am made in the image and likeness of, of God, that means that we are made in the image and likeness of love itself, and that our entire purpose is to receive love and then to reflect love to others. And to me, like, once you internalize that, you know, it changes everything. And, you know, like I say in the book, it, it leads us to start to believe that maybe we're lovable not despite who we are, but because of it. Um, and uh, maybe love is our entire purpose for even existing. Um, and so I, that's why I just think that chapter is so critical because uh, if we don't rethink ourselves and if we don't realize that our function in God's creation is to give and receive love, um, then I just don't know how we'll ever, ever, ever get to where we need to be. Right. Um, I think when I was reading that chapter, I to me, like a lot of a lot of what you're saying, just reminded me, it echoed almost Thomas Merton. And I, I don't know how familiar you are with his works, but um, you know, one thing that I love that I, I read of him, something he said that just just changed my perspective uh, dramatically was, you know, he talked about how love makes the question of worthiness like it just it voids it mm. out. Um, yeah. You know, like, because a lot of, especially like in evangelical circles, it's this idea that God loves us despite the fact that we're unworthy. And, um, right. and that's just 
nuts. You, you don't have to be, you know, that doesn't make God's love seem greater to diminish yourself. And um, Yeah, and, no, I can't tell you how much that impacted, like, my own, like, my concepts of self-worth, self-identity, self-esteem my entire life. Because as a kid, yeah, we were taught that God was love, but we're also taught that, like, okay, well, now that you've asked Jesus into your heart, when God looks at you, he no longer sees you, he sees Jesus. And so it begins with, well, God cannot see you because you're black with sin. He can't look at sin. And then, like, the solution is, well, God doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And it just left, like, oh, like, I guess, like, in either situation, like, I'm not even worthy of being looked at. Like, what does that mean about me if I, if I, I can't even be looked at? Right. Um, and it's just, like, such, I think if, of all the damaging things that I walked away from my childhood with and it was that that there was just something like so wrong with me that that like God who made me and supposedly loved me couldn't even look at me um, and unfortunately like I lived a life I mean I'm 41 years old I've lived an adult life that really lived that out in so many ways like really believing that I was unlovable and you know creating like self fulfilling prophecy after another of being unlovable and being isolated and being worthy of rejection and being worthy of this and I've just I've like played right into that narrative and, and you know in so many ways had you know a really broken life in many aspects and I really believe for me and that's where I just get so raw and vulnerable in that chapter is I think for me a lot of it is I did it to myself because man I really believed that there was something so broken inside of me that I wasn't even good enough to look at. So, right, and you know, I I come from an Arminian kind of background, being Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we might as well have ascribed to total depravity. You know what I mean? Like, For like sure. you know, oh, yeah. John, John Calvin would have been so proud, even though we weren't, you know, mm-hmm. Calvinists, because um, so much of you know, um, not even just personal, like on a personal level, but like everything was bad. You know, the material mm-hmm. world was bad. Enjoying things was bad. So of course, if you right. enjoyed you know, watching a, a secular movie, you had to be bad. You know, mm-hmm. and so. Right. Um, and like uh, some of my listeners kind of know a lot of my story, but um, my my parents had divorced when I was really young, and my dad mm-hmm. lived down the street. And I mean, he was he wasn't not in the picture, but he wasn't really a dad, and um, mm-hmm. that that marked me for years. I mean, it's still it's still mm-hmm. a part of who I am, and so I always felt so unworthy to be loved, mm-hmm. and uh, so unworthy of love, and so that. Granted, that carried straight over. Like when I came yeah. to faith, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you know, it, we I live in the backwoods of Alabama, so everyone's a Christian, but that doesn't mean anyone's a Christian if that makes sense. Sure. And so, oh, it makes total um, sense. And so I, um, you know, but when I I came to faith, it was this. I had this radical, I would say, mystical moment of just mm. feeling just the unbridled love of God, mm. and a, that quickly got you know mucked up and and dirtied up and with all the theology and ideas and about hell and being worthless and you know but Mm -hmm. in that moment when i came to faith it was because of the love of god and for the first time i felt like i had really been not that my mom didn't love me or my brothers didn't love me but it was like in that moment i was like you know i am worthy of love i i am loved Mm -hmm. and um but then again, theology and that came after that kind of squashed that out for the longest time, um, you know. Yeah. And so it's you know no, so much, you know. And that's what I think. That's what happens. We have these people that come to faith. We we tell people that God is love, and they experience that love. They experience the grace of God and the Holy Spirit in that way. But then we come back and say, but 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 but, mm-hmm. and we lay these burdens on people's shoulders that they'll never be able to carry. 
And, no, uh, definitely. It is, to me, it, it's amazing, you know, like you say, how we can have these moments, and yet somehow either people or theology will squash them in that, um, you know, I had, you know, this big divine, you know, you know, God encounter, you know, back in, you know, uh, 2000 and, and, uh, 2004, uh, where I came to believe that God is love long before anything, or that God loved me before anything else, but it was squashed so quickly, and that I was... Uh, you know, I was just uh, going through a divorce, and I was uh, suicidal, and uh, it was a day that I had, like, set out to kill myself, and I was trying to work up the courage wow. to do it, and um, <clears throat> I uh, drove to the store to get something to drink to take the edge off, and the whole way to the store, I mean, I was crying so hard, I was almost going off the road, and all I could say, you know, it, you know I was just crying out, you know, do you love me, God, do you love me? And, um, you know, I got to the store and I had, you know, put on sunglasses so nobody could see how I was crying. And uh, I was just walking down this one aisle and just uh, this Korean woman, you know, came towards me to walk past me and she slipped a piece of paper into my hands. And I, I was like so distraught that I just like put it in my pocket and I got home and sat down on my couch and, and literally had, you know, my handgun out on the couch and, you know, I emptied my pockets and... I saw that paper that I hadn't even thought about and, you know, I unwrapped it and it just said, you know, it is a fact that God loves you. That is so wild. That is awesome. Yeah. And yet what's even, what's even more wild is that didn't mark like my transformation. Like, yeah, like that, you know, that day I decided to not kill myself. Like my life began going in a different direction but I still didn't believe that I was lovable. Like it's, it's what it took me another, like how long has it been? Like 12 years. Right. Um, you know, so it is just amazing. Like this, this stuff goes so deep that we just don't want to believe it's true. We, we've had the opposite message sent so many times that even like when God stands on a mountain and screams it, we still struggle to believe it. And so, um, this is why I, you know, I love people like Thomas Ord. We need more people that are just like beating this drum to death over, you know, with the idea that God is love and he loves you. Um, right. And that is actually good news. Right. You know, and I think so much, you know, in the moment you say God is love and period in mixed mm-hmm. company, people are going to be like, oh, you're just, you're, you're just subscribing, you know, you're subscribing to choosing. this you know, hippie dippy, you know, baloney. You're, you're describing, you know, you're subscribing to these, um, you're making God a, a God of love and, and you know, that he's never angry and that he's never mm-hmm. frustrated with sin and problems in the world. And, you know, it's like, to me, it's, it's, a, the idea that God is so full of rage and anger and that we're so worthless becomes so internalized that we can't even really see how just insane it is to mm-hmm. think that, that that the God we see um, revealed in Jesus on the cross is the same God who just cannot even look at us right. uh, without just being disgusted or – you know, a few weeks ago, I had Brian Zahn on about his his latest book, Sinners in the Hands. Oh yeah, Brian's uh, a friend of mine. Yeah, a loving God, and you know, just talking about uh, Jonathan Edwards. You know, this how mm-hmm. how did we come to a place to where we really think God is just holding us over a fire? Like you know, um, it's just. And at the same time, you know, Jonathan Edwards wrote some sermons about the beauty and love of God. There were just seems totally contradictory to what he 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 had. Um, he had written before about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so, you know, we, it's like we hold those two things in us. We deep down, we know that God's love, but all the theology we've been given, all the things we've been told tells us otherwise. Mm-hmm. So at the core of us, we know it, but we can't, we can't, we don't feel it. We're too afraid to believe it. 
And I, right. I think your book does such a good job at pointing that out. We're, we are so often way too afraid to believe that God is really, really, truly in love, love and nothing else. Because mm-hmm. it's going to cause us to change. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mess some things up. Once we really it'll take a bite of that, <laughs> it, it'll flip everything. <laughs> and um, sometimes we'd rather sit in our frustration and our pain and our, and our feelings of worthlessness than really face the fact that that we're loved, and yeah. um, it's we're we're weird creatures. Humans are <laughs> we odd. Sure are. We're, we're an odd bunch, you know. Um, you know, and so in the book, um, you know, and this is a podcast uh, dedicated to to dead guys. Um, and so in the mm-hmm. book, you talk about somebody. Um, you talk about a particular dead guy that's kind of had some influence on you, and this is a little tongue in cheek. Uh, but John uh, Darby, you know, you, you talk hmm. you talk about him in the book and his influence on the church and yeah. um, things like that. And uh, I think uh, I love the 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 where in the chapter ending the end times narrative, you you quote him. Um, you put the quote in there where he talks about you know the world's going to get worse and worse and worse, and that's just yeah. how it's going to be. And um, it's just crazy to me how much that narrative won out, you know. And mm, I know we can't. It's we're we're supposed to be people of hope and resurrection, but we've so much of the Christian faith here, and even um, it, it's just so it's pes- you you call it pessimistic, um, pessimistic, and and pessimistic eschatology, and mm-hmm. it's just so void of hope. And for yeah. me, that was one of the first things that fell, I guess. When I began to venture out of fundamentalism, it mm-hmm. was I began to question the rapture. Yeah. Um, when I first got when I first came to faith, like the first thing I did as a teenager was read the whole Left Behind series, which is <laughs> not not good for a fourteen year old, right? Oh my god. Um, so I was really screwed up from the get go after <laughs> after this crazy experience I had with God. I was really messed up, mm-hmm. um, and so I was really familiar with Darby. I lived my life as a teenager on a website called RaptureReady.com. dot com. Hilarious, um, you know, just you know, God was going to burn the world to the ground, and mm-hmm. um, I couldn't wait. You know, there was some kind of weird, sadistic kind of thing. You know, thinking about the idea that you're not going to be, you're not going to suffer because you're in. You know, and. Mm-hmm. Um, just really messed up and I really just began to wrestle with that and um that was probably I would say the mark the the absolute marker I would say of when I exited fundamentalism or, yeah. or when I at least got the most heat was mm-hmm. when I was just like you know the whole rapture end times you know doom and gloom theology is trash I'm done with it and yeah. uh of course I, I voiced all these opinions on Facebook and so <laughs> it was just no it was just a torrent you know it was just you know like I had I'd spit in the face of God to some of these people to think like that. So um, I yeah. like that. You, so Darby, you know, I think he's had such a an awful influence on the church. Um, and I yeah. like that you, you, you spent a, cha- a chapter talking about the end times because I think uh, the way you framed it, you know, is that if we're going to rethink the beginning, if we're going to rethink what we know about God to be true what, about ourselves and, and who we, you know, who we are, then we have to rethink the end. For sure, yeah. And I've def- I've had a lot of readers over the years who have uh, you know requested you know that I write a book about the end times, uh, and you know it's something that I've wanted to do, but I just knew that that's not the point in my career where I am now. So I really wanted to at least make sure uh, to get a chapter in there, uh, you know, about this. In that it was you know absolutely critical to dis- the discussion of fear based faith, uh, but also you know because I, I you know care about the readers and I know that so many of them have wanted to uh, to see me address that in a book. And uh, but no, you're right. Uh, John Nelson Darby's impact on 
the entire trajectory of Christianity in general, it, you know, it, to me, it's amazing how one person can mess so much up. Uh, but that guy actually did it. Right. You know, it's like you talked about in your experience, like reading the early early evangelical movement and how they were people of, of transformation and hope. Mm-hmm. And then it was like Darby came along and oh, it was this killer. escapist, you know, everything, <laughs> everything's, you know, yeah. bad. It's going to get worse. And man, you, you see that mindset, not just in evangelicalism, but I mean, like in almost every strain of modern Christianity, you have those people, um, you mm-hmm. know, they just sure. are convinced, you know, the world's going to end in a, uh, in fire and with God swinging a sword, killing people. And, um, there's nothing we can do about it. So we should just, you know, pollute the environment and, and everything hey. else is to me. What's you know, crazy just, about Darby is that even kind of the fundamentalists were hopeful before Darby came along. You know, you have people like, you know, Charles Grandison Finney, who went around, you know, doing these massive tent revivals. Um, but, you know, one of the things that he preached, you know, conversion to Christ, but then also that you need to go be socially useful. Um, you know, and it was this this two-handed thing with Finney, you know, you know, yes, convert to Christ, but then go become socially useful. But after, right. like, Darby stuff, like, really took hold, everybody's like, screw the social usefulness stuff. Why? Like, we're getting out of here any day now. Uh, you know, so it, to me, it was amazing how he, he even altered, you know, the people that we would, you know, consider fundamentalists who were a lot more hopeful. Right, right. You know, it, was, it, it moved to this whole, let me just punch my ticket to heaven and mm-hmm. let the world go to hell, um, which is just crazy to me. I mean, it, it's still affecting us today. I mean, the new EPA director that Trump has appointed, said, he made some kind of statement about the air not being polluted enough, you know, like it's not <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's. It's not that bad. It could be worse and be fine. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's just this, who cares? I, I, and I, I like that you pointed out is that that kind of pessimistic view of the future enables us not to have to do anything today. It, yeah. it enables us not to have to have an active and participating faith that is for today and for our communities and for the world at large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, you know, like I, I described in the book, I had this massive realization one day uh, sitting in the movie theater with my daughter watching, you know, the Disney movie Tomorrowland, where, you know, at the very end of the movie, like, you know, there's this machine that is broadcasting that the world is going to end and everybody is acting as if it's true and causing the world to end. And the only way to stop the world from ending is to dismantle a machine that's convincing everybody that, you know, things are getting worse and worse. And, you know, there's this one moment where the, the villain in the story, uh, he's, you want to know why they believe this message? They believe it because it requires nothing of them today. They can just sit back and let it all fall apart. Um, and I believe that that's like the worst thing about the end times, you know, movement is it, you know, ultimately requires nothing of you today. Sure. Yeah. You want to like get everybody in the bus to go to heaven with you, but it doesn't require like anything as far as like investing in God's creation and, you know, it doing something, making long-term investments into changing social structures. You know, the end times movement doesn't require any of that. It's the easiest out anybody can take is to believe that no matter what you do, things are going to get worse. And at any moment now, God's just going to destroy it all anyway. That is like the easy road. Uh, and, uh, you know, quite disgusting if you ask me. Yeah, no, I totally agree. You know, and that's why I think, uh, I think Martin Luther said it, you know, if he, somebody asked him, you know, if he knew like Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, what he would, what he would do, he said, I would plant a tree today. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, and, and so we've we've lost that so much. It's just and, – and we act like things are unchangeable, that God has this unchanging script for the world and that mm-hmm. it doesn't matter – at the end of the day, what good we do for the world and for the people around us, other than if we can convince them to hop on our Jesus train to the sky heaven. And other than that, you know, that's it. Um, but, you know, you talk about Ord, you know, that's something I think he, I think his approach to sovereignty and providence is a good way to kind of combat that. Um, but, you know, we, we, we're not a people of hope, and that's really what we should be. We should be the people that long to, as Paul said, you know, experience the power of resurrection. Mm-hmm. And that's not just something future. That's something, you know, we should yeah. long to experience the power of resurrection today yeah. um, in the world around us, in our communities, you know. Um, mm-hmm. If if everything's getting burned to the ground, it, it, there's no point in any of it, you know. Yeah. Um, no, I love that verse that you quote from Paul. It's one of the, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, one thing, you, as far as the uh, fearfulness and, and learning to be unafraid in the book, you know, moving beyond that end time script to a, a more hopeful, optimistic future um, that I think is truly what what God wants us to do. Um, mm. And then, you know, you kind of go on in the book and you, you talk, you you focus a lot on the whole labels, which we, we mentioned, but, you know, you talk about how labels can be useful, um, but how so much danger comes with those and uh, mm-hmm. how, you know, we can, we, we use labels for, to keep people out. And, um, you know, as I was reading through those chapters, I was thinking about how desperately I think uh, that we need to move to a place where labels can become avenues of enrichment and connection versus exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, labels, like if we really use them properly and what you, you talk about that in the book, if we use them properly, I think, and even not just labels, but even like the creeds, um, shouldn't, should not be a thing that exclude people. It shouldn't be something we, we sit down to say that this excludes you, but it, it should be avenues or doors that open up for diversity and beautiful connections. Mm-hmm. And, um, like I, like to me, thinking you know, like if someone is Orthodox or like someone's Catholic, like just you know, the Reformation, 500th anniversary of the Reformation just happened. So of course, social media was just livid with, or just you know, lit up with all these different hot takes, you know. And um, I've seen some some guy who's in the Catholic Church talking about how you know um, the Catholic Orthodox Church is the only church that has true sacraments that everything. Uh, or, or priests or pastor, you know, priests and uh, people appointed by God and that everything in Protestantism is completely null and not effect and God is not present in the sacraments mm-hmm. in Protestant churches and all these things. And I was just like, you're not Catholic enough, you know, in my head. Like, I, I and I know he doesn't like, um, he doesn't represent the whole of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. I have a deep appreciation for the, the Roman Catholic Church, but to me, the different, you know, I should be able to, in my head, the church to truly be Catholic and, and not Roman Catholic, but Catholic um, mm. and that label and all of our different labels and understandings and perspectives can come together in an enriching way. Um, but we tend to use them, like you point out in the book, in the total opposite. We we use labels to keep people out, to box God in, to box ourselves in, and um, kick people out of the camp. And yeah, definitely. I don't know, I, yeah. Go ahead. I don't know how we move past sometimes. But go ahead. Well, I think I think the kind of the point I make in the book is moving past that is sure allow like allow labels to be a navigational tool to tell you kind of where somebody might land on a map. You know, for example, I embrace the label Anabaptist, and so that well that as a navigational tool, it tells you where I land on the map when it comes to the use of violence. Like that's a given. Um, you know, but it's a navigational tool. The problem is once we begin to draw life and identity from a label, 
like really like adopting that like yeah i am a progressive christian instead of yes i'm a progressive christian like you just start really drawing life from that um and once we really start to believe that we are like the arbiters of the truth and that god is working here and not there um what those labels do is we end up you know feeling as if any attack on the label is an attack on us or any critique on the label becomes a critique on god and so that triggers us to fight whatever we feel threatening us or threatening god um and so what it does is it just keeps all these different camps and categories you know at war with each other um because those who are like drawing life and identity out of the labels that they use and those who subconsciously start to think that, oh, this is where God is, um, all of a sudden like have this need to police the boundaries and to attack you know, anyone who seems threatening uh, and things like that. And that's just when you know, things really spiral out of control. And so moving beyond it is you know, just um, you know, saying, yeah, okay, a label's a label. Um, if, if I no longer meet the criteria for this label tomorrow, fine, I'm okay with that. It's just a word. It's just a word that helps somebody figure out where you land on a map at any given moment, uh, and it means nothing more. And um, so it's kind of just recognizing, like, you know, hey, what is a proper use of labels, and where do we get into some real danger zones? And that's what I try to jump into in the book. Right. You know, I think, um, I think you know, that's if we could move to that, I think that would be great. Unfortunately, like, I just feel like everything is so polarizing yeah. in our culture, in our church, and in, in politics right now. It's such, and like we've, we've covered, you know, it's so easy for the people on the progressive side to fall right into the same entrapments, you know, like we horse you right back around, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it, to me, like it, the, there's beauty in that diversity. And in the, in the last several years, I've just, I've come, I've become more and more convinced, especially even studying like pre-creedal Christianity, that really the church is, is never more orthodox than when it, it allows uh, for the cultivation of these diverse expressions of the faith. Right. Um, realize that you know jesus is in the center and that we are all moving towards jesus from different perspectives from different avenues from different cultures and and demographics and um you know we that we we don't like unity we like we tend to like uniformity right right right. yeah no yeah you reminded me a really good book called uh, i think manifold witness the plurality of truth by john frankie which uh really dives into a lot of that but just how you know god God can be moving in all of these different places, you know, and uh, he can be moving there just as much as he is here. Right. Um, and, you know, for me, I think one thing you talked about in the book was about how, like, it, it was hard, I think, for you to find a place to fit in. You know, you would go mm-hmm. to a different place and then you would realize as you began to realize things you st- didn't believe, you would kind of have to move around and um I know that was definitely true for me. I didn't. I went to church eight times in the year after I stepped down from my a, a youth pastor role. Mm-hmm. Uh, the year following it, when I kind of started leaving fundamentalism, I went to church eight times, and every time it was, I was on the verge of panic attacks. Like yeah. it was just so much, you know, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. And then that next year, I went to church even less, um, yeah. and then I got hired on at a church. Okay. Um, yeah. So and now I'm in. A, I'm. I, I came to faith in a primitive Baptist church. I was part of a, a, a Pentecostal church plant, and now I'm firmly seated in my, currently in my United Methodist Church office. Okay. And, uh, you know, so um, 
And there's people in our church of all kinds of different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I, when I was reading that uh, in your book, I, I thought about the fact that uh, we live in the parsonage, and um, they were remodeling our bathroom. And one of the guys, one of our trustees, um, was there overseeing the project. He is a uh, ex marine. Okay. Uh, ex marine, very very conservative. Very pro-Trump. My wife is everything the opposite of that, and she was there in the house with them most that day. Uh, and so they had some interesting conversations, to say the least. Okay. And uh, that was the first time, you know, that that he had got to really be around my wife and kind of figure out who she was, I guess. And so uh, he was kind of surprised that she was so diametrically different, I guess, than his perspectives on faith and and Jesus and politics or whatever. And uh, I told my pastor, I was like, you know, you realize that for all this weekend, my wife has been, you know, in the house with so-and-so all weekend, and he lost it. Like, he was like, I didn't even think about that. And he was like, "Was is everything okay? I said, yeah, they got they got along great and they had so a lot of good conversations and and joked and had a, genuinely a good time around each other and um he was like you know ryan if there is hope or if two people like your wife and this person can be around each other that long and go to the same church and talk about the things they talked about then there might be hope for the church mm. and um and you know and so it was it was super cool granted awesome. um they would you know, they totally disagree on so much stuff, but it was just when I was reading those chapters, I thought about that. And so I'm thankful to be in a place where there is some very, very um, immense disagreement on things, but we, we still show up and we, we still come to worship together and we still come to the same place despite our disagreements and oh, that's um, great. our perspectives. So it's nice to be on this side. Not that our church is perfect, but I don't think there is one. So. No, of course not. Absolutely. So. Um, towards the end of the book here, um, there's something that you, you kind of reframed the whole um, moving beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the subtitle of your book is Unafraid, Moving Beyond uh, Fear-Based Faith. And so you move uh, – at the end of the book, though, you kind of um, reframe that subtitle. Mm-hmm. And you reframe it as not so much as a moving beyond but a returning home. Yeah. And I loved it. Um, that And what's funny is that for several months, that has kind of just been something that's been in my head um, a lot. And I, I've talked about it with a few other people, um, even I think on the podcast one time, you know, but understanding deconstruction and understanding uh, moving to these new theological perspectives and places is really a returning home. And for me, I, I have to say that's 100% true because um, – like I said, you know, that experience I had of God early on when I first had that kind of radical encounter with God's love is that, you know, when I was coming out of fundamentalism, people were saying, oh, you've changed. You've walked out on God. I had an ex-pastor message me eight months. So he hadn't talked to me in eight months, tell me that I was so far from God, that I was spitting in God's face. Oh, man. And so, yeah, all these different things, right? And all I could think about is that for the first time in years, I actually feel like I, I'm – I believe in the God that I know, <laughs> you know, the, mm-hmm, sure. um, and so like, you know, I bought the, I, I drank the Kool-Aid with everybody, but I couldn't, I could never get away from the fact that I knew this God was love. And so, um, the deconstruction process and, and where I've been for the last several years has felt like a coming home. It's mm-hmm. felt like a return to that, that Sunday morning service that I was at in that little one room primitive Baptist church where I encountered, uh, the love of God. And so I love that metaphor, man. I loved it. Um, and so for you, I know you, you talk about that in the book. So could you just talk about that just for a minute? Yeah, just for sure. I mean, uh, 
I kind of describe it, you know, I, I live in, I live in Maine, uh, where everything is, is outdoors and, you know, I, I love kind of dabbling in, you know, amateur survivalist type stuff. And, you know, one of the things, you know, in, you know, that we know is, you know, there's the whole term walking in circles. Well, I mean, this is a real phenomenon when you are like lost in the wilderness, um, you will generally walk in circles and it's because, uh, you have a slightly heavier step on one side of your body with your dominant foot and it's just subtle enough that over time it will cause you to end up right back where you started because we're just not aware of the subtleness of that slightly heavier step. Um, And so for me, I realized spiritually um, that I had a slightly heavier step that was just slowly bringing me back to Jesus, Um, that that was really where my journey began and that no matter how much I deconstructed, um, I never deconstructed this fascination with Jesus. Um, and um, so for me, uh, you know, at the end of the journey, it really led me back to almost like what you were describing, you know, my early encounters, um, you know, with Jesus sitting in, you know, this, uh, you know, rural church. And back then, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm older than you, but we had we had these, uh, they were green felt boards where the teacher would pull out these, you know, little paper cutouts of Bible characters and stick them on the felt board and kind of create that. There was no technology or anything like that to, to teach with, you know, back then. And, you know, I just remember sitting there just looking at these little cutouts of Jesus and his disciples and just being fascinated with this person of Jesus. And so my entire faith journey just brought me like full circle back to this person, Jesus. And it's like, you know, this is my home. This is my home. No matter how much I deconstruct, no matter how much I believe this or that, like just this, this Jesus thing is my home. And so wherever that takes me is, is where I want to go. And, um, you know, I just think it's amazing how so many journeys will bring us full circle, but that, you know, maybe God is in the circle. Maybe God needs us to go in that circle. Maybe there are so many lessons to be learned as we kind of deviate from our path and, um, you know, maybe we just need to kind of trust God and to step into it and to realize that, uh, realize that he has a way of just bringing us back to the, the starting point where we need to really begin at. Right. I agree. I think, um, I think that's just so needed for us to understand that for one, this is a journey. Like we're going to, we're going to mess up. We're going to fall. We're mm-hmm. going to change what we believe or what we think a thousand times, you know, um, but I think once we get back to that place to where we experience the love of God and we, we truly believe it, or at least we're, we're, we're wrestling with that idea that we, you know, we know that God's love, that from there every, we can find that freedom to not be afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. You know, I can't think of the quote, I, or I can't think of who said it, but it says, you know, um, love is what we were born with, fear is what we've learned. Hmm. And um, you know we're we're born with this love, and I think we're reborn. We you know we have this uh, experience with God. We are reborn with love, but then again, so much of the institutional church teaches us fear, and yeah. then it's we live our whole lives trying to get back mm-hmm. to to what we know versus you know in in unlearning all those things. Um, so yeah, man, Ben, this book I uh, was just. Fantastic, and like oh, I said, I, I've I've just uh, I've recommended it to so many people. Um, in closing, would it be okay if I let I read the last paragraph to our readers of your book? By all would means, that be fine. I'd love to hear someone okay. read it. 
All right, so in the last paragraph, on the last page of your book, I, I just love it. And I have this weird thing, like a lot of times, like if I get a new book, the first thing I read is the last paragraph. Um, I, don't do that for, I don't do that for fiction, okay. uh, just nonfiction. <laughs> but, um, and usually just, I don't know, something about that last paragraph. It, if I'm ever in a bookstore and I see a book that I find inter- that seems interesting, I'll do that. And that's usually okay. the deciding factor if I get it. Um, so in the last paragraph, you say the willingness to join Jesus, the willingness to have the courage to name the things you don't believe anymore and say goodbye to them, the willingness to see the new thing God is doing in your life and in the world, and the willingness to expand the capacity of your heart to give and receive love is what this journey is all about. To begin, all you have to do is look fear in the face and then rebelliously un it. And I was just like, I read that. I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be such a good book. And I, I, That's not a bad way to end the book. All right, okay. Oh no, it's good. I haven't read it in a while, so I was kind of nervous, but. <laughs> so I, I enjoy I enjoyed the book from uh, cover to cover. I was I was up till after midnight reading last night. Wow. I was like, I'm going to get up early and read. And I started reading. And I was like, no, I'm just going to keep reading. And then I got up this morning like at six thirty and finished the last few chapters and. Uh, I just, it was a really good book. And so in closing real quick, I know we're about the hour mark now. And so, uh, I ask everybody this question and yeah. if there was one person you could bring back, uh, from the dead, one person from church history, uh, it could be more contemporary or, or ancient. Who would it be and why? Ah, for me, that is an easy question. Uh, of course, for folks out on the internet who have seen, you know, that I have a boatload of tattoos, uh, of course, uh, you know, the lower half of my sleeve on my right side is dedicated to a man named Dirk Willems. And so uh, Dirk Willems uh, lived uh, in the mid-1500s. I think maybe he died in uh, 1555, if I recall directly. So Dirk was uh, one of the uh, early Anabaptists, and he was uh, arrested. Uh, he lived in the Netherlands, or what we uh, call the Netherlands. He uh, was arrested for um, uh, baptizing adults when it was illegal to do so. And so uh, they threw Dirk into uh, prison. And, uh, of course, as an Anabaptist, we believe in enemy love, nonviolence, things like that. So Dirk was uh, uh, sentenced to die by being burned at the stake. Um, However, uh, because of uh, him being on prison rations, he lost a lot of weight, and he was able to escape out of his window by tying some bedsheets together. Um, And as he ran, he was crossing an icy moat, uh, near the place where he was being held, and the jailer chased him and came after him. And Dirk was about to make it all the way to the other side when the jailer fell through the ice. And so Dirk had to make a decision. Um, either the man, his jailer, like the person who was going to lead him to his own execution to be burned by fire, um, to either save him or to save himself. And so Dirk turned back and he saved his jailer. Um, who then did in turn take him back to prison, and Dirk was later burned at the stake uh, for baptizing. And um, so I would wow. love to sit down and have a conversation with Dirk on how he, you know, what it was like to make that decision. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't. I, th- I thought the story was going to end a little uh, different. Yeah. Um, no. Right? No, Enemy so love is costly. Crazy. Yeah, right? It is. Man, that's awesome. Um, I'm ve- I'm not very familiar with him. Um, so that's that's awesome. I'm definitely going to be looking into him. I think for me, uh, as of late, uh, would be uh, I think I might have said this the last episode, uh, but uh, Ignatius of Loyola. I've been I don't know I've been 
I spend a lot of time. I have a lot of um, Jesuit authors mm-hmm. that I just I find fascinating, and so um, him being the father of the Jesuits and uh, just his life and his journey has just been super yeah. cool. And so I've uh, I, I'm pretty fascinated with him. So I think right now it would okay. be him. Um, and I've incorporated the examine uh, examine prayer into my, kind of my daily mm-hmm. habit, and so I've kind of been stumbling through it for a while now. So I would like to talk to him probably face to face about it and you know his uh his spiritual exercises and things oh, like that cool. um so but mine, mine changes week to week probably yeah. <laughs> because well, it just it really depends on who i'm uh, who i've been well, reading for me it so. will always my first answer will always be dirt because he's got an entire giant tattoo on my arm so <laughs> that's awesome Awesome, awesome. All right, uh, thank you so yeah, much, thanks, uh, Benjamin, for coming on. It's been such a blast having you on. Again, listeners, uh, buy the book. There will be links in the show notes uh, to Ben's website. There will be links to where you can buy the book and purchase it. Um, you need to do it. Pick it up. It's really good, especially if you've ever struggled with that fear that we've talked about you know, and, and struggled with learning to be unafraid and you're wanting to move beyond that fear-based faith. And um, I think Ben's book does, does such a good job at targeting that and um, laying it open, and he does it in a way that is just honest, and he lays his life out on the table and uh, in such a beautiful and awesome way. So pick up the book. The stuff will be in the show notes. Uh, so be sure to subscribe to our uh, signpost because uh, Advent is just around the corner. And if you want that free Advent devotional that I've been working on uh, for months, you got to be a subscriber to the po- uh, signpost uh, email newsletter. Uh, and on the first day of Advent, it'll be in your inbox. And um, other than that, grace and peace to you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you want to drop a review on iTunes, I would be eternally grateful. It helps us get more um, more people to know about the podcast and things like that. You want to share it with your friends. All of those things help tremendously. So grace and peace to you. Until next time.